1: When I called my mother and I said I'm dropping out of university and I was shoplifting those pizzas at 18 years old to feed myself, it was like survival, like I was either going to be successful or I was going to be successful. There was not a plan B option.
0: The guest that we have today on the podcast is Steven Bartlett, and he's one of the biggest names in business right now. Steve went from being a completely broke college dropout to founding a company called Social Chain, which he then sold for like ludicrous amounts of money. He was the youngest ever dragon on BBC's Dragon's Den, which for the Americans in our audience is sort of the UK version of Shark Tank. And he's also the host of the ridiculously popular podcast The Diary of a CEO that has interviewed all sorts of really successful celebrities and famous people and also me.
1: I've sat with so many people and thought, I will never be as good as you at what you do. I wish I was capable of it, but I'm able to separate out my admiration and my aspiration.
0: And Steve is also a successful author. He's written a book called Happy Sexy Millionaire that I've talked about on this channel. And he's just released his latest book, The Diary of a CEO, The 33 Laws of Business and Life. We talk a lot about the things that made Stephen successful.
1: I spent maybe three to four years working in call centers. I could have gone and got a more glamorous job, choosing a a job at that early age that was focused on my knowledge and skills is the reason why i was able to launch businesses and do well at a young age
0: we talk about some of the principles the strategies the mindsets and the tools that he's learned through his course of building multiple eight-figure companies
1: work-life balance is a load of nonsense right it implies that you're trying to balance the scales you're not you're trying to find harmony which is where you feel good about your life
0: steven welcome to the podcast uh, how does so it weird. feel to be in that chair <laughs> this is a very unusual place for you to be
1: it's so weird genuinely it's so weird it's funny because before we started recording i i asked you it, i asked you if my chair was lower because there's something about looking at this frame which i find quite daunting mm. even though it's like my frame and it's my you know my backdrop it's, it's daunting but i'm i'm here for it and i'm excited nice
0: i'm so looking forward to diving into into your story because you're normally the interviewer and I've been wanting to ask you a bunch of questions for the last several years since we first met. Oh gosh. I feel like I've got, I've got my chance. Um, so to start with, for the two or three people in the audience who might not know who you are, I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about the backstory? And in particular, I'm keen to hear about what your school and university years were like
1: yeah so, so it's quite an
0: unconventional path to success.
1: I moved to the UK when I was a baby from Botswana. I was born in Botswana in Africa. My mother's Nigerian. My dad's English. So my mother's black. And my dad's white. They're very, very different people. Probably the total opposites. My mother didn't get an education in Africa. I think she left school at five, six, seven years old, can't read or write. My dad is an academic um, who went to, you know, smashed every exam he was that was ever put in front of him. So I'm somewhat caught, caught in the middle in many respects of who I am. We moved to Plymouth in the Southwest, only Black family and the poorest family in the area and in my school, pretty much. Huge insecurity and shame. They stopped parenting me about 10 years old, which creates this huge void of independence. And in that void, I start experimenting. I learn a lot about myself and what I'm capable of. And that's kind of a consistent theme through my life. School... I decide at some point, and I think because my two brothers, Jason and Kevin, are geniuses, that this implicit narrative that school and grades will correlate to your outcomes, I believed it. And so I knew that going to school wasn't going to be the way that I got all those things that I wanted to get, financial freedom, all the nice stuff in life. Um, so I gave up at about 14, 15 years old. I remember the conversation with myself where I realized it was gonna have to be something else. And at the time I was running these little experiments in school with businesses and they were working so my thesis was when i'm older these are going to be the adults with me so that the party that i organized the vending machine deal that i did these would be the adults with me so i'll do that when i'm old and that will be enough for me to get there go to university after being so i was expelled from school um by mr let's call him mr t and then i was unexpelled by mr sprinkle Mm. um he actually said this on TV a couple of months ago. He came on What I Lied to You, walked down the stairs, and he said on What I Lie to You. Um, he unexpelled me because I made the school so much money. I, I was doing lots of deals for the school, the vending machine deals, the trips, the school trips, the parties. And then I was expelled again in the last, roughly in the last week of school um, for attendance. Wasn't oh, wow. rude to anybody. Always been well-mannered. <laughs> Couldn't, couldn't do school, couldn't hand in homework, couldn't listen in class, had to fall asleep in every lesson. Go to university, believing it'll be different. Last one lecture, drop out. Call my mum. Mum, I'm dropping out. She says, if you do, I'll never speak to you again. I say, I love you too. I put down the phone. We didn't speak for many years. Um, at least not, no sort of amicable conversation. Uh, and then started businesses. And then that's, um, for the last 10 years, that's been my life. 12 years, been my life. Oh.
0: I've, I've been watching your vlog recently and you're constantly jumping from one thing to another, the to-do list with like 34 items on it by like 11am. That doesn't seem like the sort of person that can't like focus in school or doesn't want to kind of take boxes.
1: Yeah. I think there's, and there's also often a misconception that I don't rate education because I don't love school or university but school and university aren't education. They are institutions and systems. Mm. I love education. I fell asleep last night listening to a video about artificial intelligence and rockets, right? I'm I'm a self educated that loves education. If you zoom in on that kid that got expelled, what you'll also see is he stole the psychology textbooks because he was so interested in them. And he dominated the business class so much so that Mr. Hughes kicked me off basically like almost expelled me in the business class because I wasn't letting anyone else do anything. So if you zoom in, you find someone that is absolutely obsessed with the things he likes, Mm. and that is incapable of doing things he does not like. And that is such an important trait my resi- my resistance to do things that i do not like i think is such an important trait for for us all to try and embody because what it means is you won't overstay your welcome in relationships in jobs in career paths that aren't serving you and we all have this wonderful sort of internal um, signal or barometer in, inside our chest that we just ignore. We put it at the very bottom of the priority stack and we put above it mum's opinion, social expectation, what that girl on Instagram will think. And if that sits above the the signal, and I call it a signal because it is a signal like hunger or thirst. If, if that signal of how do I actually feel sits at the bottom, you will overstay your welcome in situations that you're not meant to be in my superpower is quitting with such ease and conviction and peace because the signal that matters the most is how do I feel right now Mm. and and that is useful tuning into that is really really powerful
0: one of the one of the things that I um I took away from your first book happy sexy millionaire we can talk about the title of that (laughs) in a moment um but one of the things I really took away was the quitting framework. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you can talk through that for people who might not have come across it. I
1: feel like you know it better than me. Because, <laughs> <laughs> but, I'll, but, I'll, but I'll pop at it. So the reason I wrote the quitting framework is because I realized in hindsight that I was able to quit things e- easier than most people. Let's take one step back. Why is quitting important? In life, we glamorize starting right? But my observation was that the advantage I've had, as I've said, was being able to quit fast and eat with peace and ease. And when you just think logically about starting something, right? Or saying, it's also the same with like saying yes and no to things. In order to start something in life, you actually first need to quit something else. So you can't start a new relationship unless you quit the last one. You're not going to start a new startup unless you quit the last one. Um, You're not going to start a new career career, unless you've quit the last job. So quitting and starting should be held in equal regard. And there should be acknowledgement that they have a two-way relationship with one another. They're both the actions of winners. People say quitting is for losers. And they say like starting is for winners. In fact, quitting and starting are both for winners. And the, the most successful intelligent people I've ever met Have an unbelievable ability to quit things that make no objective sense. Mm. You're quitting that high-paying job to go and deal to go and do card tricks at a table in Bristol, Darren Brown. You're quitting that amazing career as a lawyer um, that your parents are now so proud of you of to go and spend the next ten years going up and down the country in pubs and cracking jokes, Jimmy Carr. It just it objectively seems to make no sense, but subjectively they've reached a certain level of ease. So. I, I could relate to myself in the same way in the regard of if you look at what I've quit from like, stopped going to school because I realized that that wasn't going to going to be, the, pe- the paper that I got at the end of the process wasn't going to be enough, especially compared to my brothers. Quit university after that first lecture, quit my first startup after two years, quit my second one after about six years um, and lots of little quitting in and amongst there. Um, why was I able to quit with with peace in at times when objectively you would think I was a madman for doing so? When I was leaving so much apparently on the table And so I tried to make a framework, a framework that other people could use to try and make their quitting decisions through. So at the start of the framework, you ask yourself, am I thinking of quitting? See the, you know, yes or no. So if you are thinking of quitting, the framework begins. And I created these two subcategories, which you can define for yourself, which I think is important to do. You're either thinking of quitting something because it's something's really hard, like it's difficult. And then which would be you know you're running a marathon and you're on the 23rd mile and you're doing it you know to raise money for a charity but it's really it's painful it's difficult it's it's causing discomfort or you're thinking about quitting something because it like it sucks and that's more of like an emotional mental thing it's just it just doesn't feel good to you on an emotional mental psychological level so let's go down the hard route i'm thinking of quitting because it's hard the first question you should then ask yourself is is the hardship worth the rewards on offer? So you're running that marathon. You're raising money for that leukemia charity. You're on the 23rd mile, but it's worth it. The The hardship is worth the reward at the end of it. If the hardship is worth it, don't quit. If the hardship isn't worth it, then you should quit. Because the the worst thing to do in life is to do something that is hard and meaningless. Mm. Like those are, th- those are where all the problems happen. When I think about studies of the impact of not having autonomy in your work and working on a production line and not having meaning and purpose in what you're doing every day and how that impacts your health and disease rises in your body. That is the worst situation to be in. Let's go down the other side of the framework. By the way, do correct me because you know this framework better than no, I do. No, you got now. it spot on. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. okay. We'll go down the other side of the framework. So you're thinking about quitting something because it sucks. You're in a relationship, your husband, you know the the, the magic has just left the relationship. You're in a company and there's problems at work, but you you know you haven't yet had the conversation with your boss. The next question becomes: Do you believe you could make it not suck? Right. So, in the context of a marriage, um, that might mean going to marriage counselling mm. and having a difficult conversation, thrashing it out with your partner, and you know going through those issues. If the answer is no, it so it sucks. You think you can't change that. Quit. If you believe you could make it nuts not suck, the next question to ask yourself is is the effort that it would take to make it not suck worth the rewards on offer? So like you look at how that marriage might look if you were to resolve it. You believe you can, is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Is Dave worth it? Is the is the reward on the other end of that process to fix it sucking worth it? If the answer is no, quit. You believe you could make it nuts not, not suck anymore but the effort it would take is not worth the reward on offer, quit. If you believe you could make it not, not suck, and the effort it would take is worth the rewards on offer, stay and fight mm. for it. Nice. And that's my simple framework, which is intentionally ambiguous.
0: One of the, one of the laws in the new book, I um, can't remember which one it is, but it's, it's all about the power of discipline. Uh, um, the, near the end. The discipline equation, yeah, death, time, and discipline. And I think a lot of people struggle with the idea of you know obviously discipline is good, and you know there 's the muhammad ali quote um i you know i I suffered for ten years to become a champion. what's to yeah. that effect but then it, it's it seems to conflict some of the time with like this thing that you're saying of like don't don 't do stuff that doesn 't feel good necessarily so like how do you how do you square this like what is the balance between i 'm going to discipline myself to get through school because like the reward at the other end could be worth it versus I'm going to actually quit school and do my own thing, which might feel better.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's so interesting because I've never tried to make the link, but for me, there's a really, really clear link between the two. So in the book, I started writing a chapter about time management, which is something you know a lot about. Jam. about it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem I had Ali was, um, I, I started researching time management techniques, looking up how I manage my own time. And I encountered hundreds of time management techniques and, as I'm writing this, I'm going okay. Well, there's so many, and there's the Promoto technique and the A B C D da da da, and the time blocking technique. I ask myself, why is there so many techniques? If if any of them worked for everyone, there yeah. wouldn't be so many of them. Kind of like fad diets. There's just a million endless list. People are writing new ones because the current ones are failing them, so they're going in search of new ones. And people are writing new ones. Um, and the reason why the old ones are failing them is because they don't have discipline. Any of these time management techniques would work if you could stick to them. You know, I say that like objectively, I think they would. Um, So where does discipline come from? And why does discipline matter? And then I, so I started writing about death because I think you have to understand, there's a really important relationship between our time and discipline because We could choose to do everything in a world where time was infinite. Mm. But it it is the scarcity of time, the limited amount of time we have, which I talk about in chapter 19 of my first book, when I'm talking about the roulette pieces and the the chips we wake up with every day. We wake up with 16 chips left out of the 24. We've placed 8 of them on sleep. So through that framework, it's important to allocate your time with a certain intentionality, or you might regret the life you've lived. So that's why discipline matters, because I only have 16 chips after spending eight of them on sleep. So if I don't want to have a regrettable life, I must need discipline. As I go down my thought process here, I start talking about death and the fact that if I'm a 35 year old now, I'm 30 now, but I have 17,000 days left to live roughly if I meet the life expectancy of the USA. Um, So I need to figure out in order to live a non-regrettable life, how to be disciplined? Then I started to examine the areas of my life where I possess discipline and the areas where I don't, and I was trying to establish a relationship between the two. Why am I really disciplined with going to the gym now, um, but I'm undisciplined in other areas? Why am I really disciplined with? Um, I was speaking to Simon Sinek the other day, and I was telling him about this discipline equation, and he was like, "Yeah, but Steve, you know." I don't love putting the bins out, but at eight o'clock in the morning, I got out of bed yesterday and went and put the bins out. And I was like, no, that makes perfect sense, Simon, because the discipline equation to me is, and this is super, super rough. At the start of the equation you have why that goal subjectively really matters to you. Mm. Like how much that goal really subjectively matters to you. Plus the psychological I- enjoyment you get through the pursuit of the goal, minus the psychological dissatisfaction and friction you get in the pursuit of the goal. So if I put that in the frame of Simon Sinek there, and what he said about getting out of bed at 8am because he could hear the bin truck coming down the road, I said to Simon, what is the cost of you not putting the bins out? There's two costs. Cost A is the bins overflow, and then he's got nowhere to put his, as they would say, garbage. Cost B is you can get fined. So the, the reason for doing it is high at the start of the equation. Mm. The psychological enjoyment you get from it is is super low, right? And the friction is high, but the why is higher than all of it. So the equation still balances in terms of incentives for you to get out of bed and do it because the, you don't want to find an overflowing bins. And that desire is greater than the friction is. Mm. And in the context of me going to the gym, I didn't go to the gym for 27 years of my life. I couldn't find the discipline to do it. I was like most people, like I made the intention. I announced it to the world, I failed. And I did that for three years. I, d- I announced it to the world, I failed. And then the pandemic happened. And I watched as the world was torn apart because our health outcomes were linked to our fitness and our current health. And as I watched that in March, 2020, through the screens and watched Italy be ravaged by this this pandemic and watched it come over from Wuhan and then start to creep through Europe, I realized very unforgettably that there is this tectonic plate called my health which I'd never seen shake before and I was witnessing it shake globally vicariously and everything I'm pursuing and care about actually sits on top of it my girlfriend my dog my cat my my businesses that I've built my podcast my everything I care about is on top of that so the tectonic plate of my health is my first priority if you remove my 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 health you remove everything you can take my other stuff it doesn't impact, there's no relationship between them really. But the health is the number one thing. And that, going back to my equation, you can see how that influences the equation. Suddenly, the reason, the why for the goal to go to the gym and work out was so strong that it outweighed the friction. And since for the last three years, I've gone to the gym 82% of the time, which is six days a week, roughly, um and it's stuck and it's now it feels to be effortless because the incentive structure is so clearly um aiming towards discipline nice
0: um i really like that equation and as i as i was reading it um i was thinking that second component the um the psychological joy of the pursuit of the thing yeah that is the one that my whole productivity philosophy is based around ah. um cuz for me discipline is like I like having to rely on discipline to me feels like a negative thing. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm I'm suffering, but it's worth it. Whereas when I, so when I, when I read the chapter about health in, in the diary of CEO, I was, I was reading this on a flight to Florida to attend a Tony Robbins event. And I was in a bit of like, yeah, I'm going to read the book. And you had that chapter where you talked about health and it's, it's, a, it's the same stuff you talk about in Happy yeah. but It's like for, somehow the reminder hit me so well that immediately I texted my assistant being like, okay, I need to take my health seriously. And the system we're going to put in place is I currently don't enjoy going to the gym. Mm. So it's not fun. I appreciate that it's valuable. But for me, that appreciation that it's valuable does not actually provide <laughs> the <friction. laughs> yeah. Therefore, I need to make it fun. Therefore, can we book me a personal trainer and give him the goal that like three times a week, let's try and make working out fun. Mm-hmm. And so we've got the first appointment tomorrow, the yeah. next one the, the day after. And it was a direct result of seeing that reminder where I was like, fuck that's take so
1: amazing ali that's so incredible so amazing because it's a strange thing to find in this book mm. <laughs> i think that i think it's like law number nine about your first foundation just remembering that everything you've done Ali, in your life like it same same for me is contingent on that yeah and help goes everything else just dies it's just and then so why don't we live our life with that as the first like priority in the list of things you know if it is the tectonic play it should be the first thing um But even thinking about that through the discipline equation, you can know something. You can know something. I I was saying to Rich Roll earlier, I know meditation matters because every guest has told me. I don't do it. Because when I look through the lens of the discipline equation, it's not just about the equation itself. It's also about how that then stacks against your other priorities. So you can have, the equation can be in your favor, but in a world of finite time, there might be other things mm. that are even stronger in terms of forces of discipline. So mm. I know that meditation is good and I want to I do it, right? It's like there. The psychological enjoyment of it's maybe not huge. Mm. The friction's kind of high because it costs you time and stuff like that. And it's a bit hard to just think of nothing or whatever the process is. So it's like slightly in the favor of doing it. But then in in the context of 16 chips left when I wake up in the morning, it's not going to win out over these other disciplines. So all of the disciplines are also competing with each other to to get into the calendar. Yeah.
0: And I think when like in in your case with the health stuff, it feels like when there's a clear emotional trigger, that's where it takes it from intellectual knowing to actual knowing. 100%. Whereas for me, I haven't yet had that with health. Um, for some reason, and so maybe it's you an need intellectual
1: l- knowing. <laughs> <laughs> I said this to Rich, m- yeah. in, with meditation, I said, maybe I need a little bit more pain. Mm. And I say this to, I think, I sometimes I don't always say it because it's not the most um, empathetic thing to say in certain situations, but it's become clear to me from doing the diary of a CEO that change happens when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of staying the same, as they say. Mm. Um, and rock bottom is a rem- unfortunately a remarkable driver of transformation and changing people's lives um that some of us need to to be for the why part of the discipline equation to suddenly go Shh. yeah
0: you know yeah i think the same thing applies to uh people who want to sort of quit their jobs and eventually start a business as a side hustle all this stuff like for me when i read the four-hour workweek it was an intellectual knowing of like oh it would be nice to have a side business but when i saw doctors in real life absolutely miserable 10 years into their career and I was seeing them every day and talking to them and they were absolutely miserable and they, they couldn't leave the job because they didn't have enough money. That was when it became like, like sort of deep, a, a, a gra- deep within a grounding of like, oh shit, like I don't want to be in that position where I'm shackled to a job I don't enjoy. And that to me was the idea of hell. So it's like that prompted so much action while I was at university and people would be like, oh, you're so disciplined. You're like building a business on the side or editing videos on the side. I'm like, didn't feel like it took much discipline at all. It was just like the pain of the <laughs> the pain of the alternative was just so great. I'm just like we're going to do this.
1: What I heard, what I hear there as well is like the distinction between knowledge and belief. Mm. One of them was knowledge, the other one was belief. And as I talk about in the book about like um flat earthers and stuff like that, you can show them knowledge. You can show them information. Yeah. You know, But there's nothing that will, in the case of someone that believes the earth is flat, the only possible way you could change their beliefs is if you took them up in a spaceship and showed them the earth with their own eyes. Because first party evidence that we experience with our own eyes, whether it's vicariously by watching someone you know and care and trust go through it, or you go through it yourself, is the path to belief change. And that's why I say sometimes like maybe you need a little bit more pain or there's a rock bottom you haven't yet gotten to with some of those more stubborn beliefs. Um, because all your friends and advice and the podcast and the quotes you've listened to haven't been, been enough. But also when you think about self-belief, how to, how to build self-belief and confidence, same thing, first-party evidence, looking in the mirror and saying like, I'm beautiful and I'm, I'm going to be this and that and the other, none of it works as far as I'm concerned. None of that works. It's not stronger than the seven-year-old that told you you're a jackass and what your dad said to you in the kitchen that time about your hair. Like that's a stronger group of evidence that's ingrained in yourself story. So the way that you counteract those stubborn beliefs you don't want to have is you have to go out there and you have to put yourselves in growth zones where you're going to be, be conf- where those beliefs will be confronted and you'll be given first party evidence that those beliefs aren't true. Knowledge isn't enough, unfortunately. It is sometimes when the existing belief isn't super strong and stubborn. But if the super existing belief that like, I'm a bad public speaker and I can't do that is super strong, then the only way to counteract it is with first party evidence, which you'll get from stepping outside of your zone of comfort. This episode is very kindly brought to you by
0: Huel. I've been using Huel. I've been a paying customer of Huel since 2017, since my fifth year of medical school when I first discovered it. And basically, what it is, if you haven't heard of it, is that it is a meal in a shake. It's got the perfect balance of carbs and fiber and proteins and fat, and it contains 26 different vitamins and minerals. All you do is add water or milk to the powder. Usually, I use water. You can shake it up or you can blend it. I prefer to blend. And then it becomes a fantastic option if you're like me and you're kind of busy, and so you don't really have time for breakfast or lunch. My favorite version is the Huel Black Edition. It's absolutely sick. 400 calories 40 grams of protein for 400 calories i'm trying to get hench and it's actually pretty hard to find something that has such a high protein content for such a low calorie trade-off and so i really like using the huel black edition to start my mornings off it's vegan it's gluten-free it's lactose-free the black edition is available in nine flavors my favorite is salted caramel and i wouldn't recommend having every single meal huel because that gets a bit annoying after a while but it's absolutely fantastic it's like one of the meals of the day especially if you're busy and you're gonna kind of default to something unhealthy otherwise. It's also very affordable, so it actually works out to £1.68 per meal for a 400-calorie meal, which is just incredible value and actually way cheaper than other generic protein shakes on the market. And it saves a bunch of time because it's so quick and easy to make. And so it's particularly exciting that they're sponsoring the podcast, and actually, we had the founder of Huel, Julian Hearn, who was on the very first season of the podcast. That was a sick episode that got so many rave reviews as well. Anyway, if you're interested in trying out Huel, then head over to Huel.com forward slash deep dive, and if you use that URL, A, it really helps me out, but B, you also get a free t-shirt and also a free shaker that comes with your order. So go to heelcom forward slash deep dive. That'll also be linked down in the video description or the show notes. And thank you so much, Heel, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is very kindly brought to you by Trading212. Now, people ask me all the time for advice about investing because I've made a bunch of videos about it on the YouTube channel. And my advice for most people is generally invest in broad stock market index funds, which is exactly what you can do completely for free with Trading212. It's a great app that lets you trade stocks and funds and ETFs and foreign exchange if you really want to. And one of the great things about the app is that if you're new to the world of investing, you can actually invest with fake money. You don't have to put real money in. They've got a practice mode where you invest fake money and then it actually tracks what the market is doing in real time. So, you can see, had I invested 100 pounds into this thing, what would my return have been X weeks or X months further down the line? Once you've got some comfort with that, then it's super easy to deposit money into your Trading into account. You can use Apple Pay like I do initially, or you can use a direct bank transfer. And then once the money is in your Trading 212 account, then you can invest it in basically whatever you want. Now, if you're based in the UK, you might be familiar with the concept of an ISA, which is an individual savings account, which is basically a tax-free wrapper that you can put money in. You can put 20,000 pounds in every year, up to 20,000 pounds, and it resets every April. And then all that money can grow and it's completely tax-free for the rest of your life. And if you wanna sign up for an ISA, you can sign up for one completely for free, also on Trading212. So if you haven't yet filled up your ISA allowance or at least put some money into your ISA for this year, that might be a good step forward. Also, very excitingly, there's a new feature that they've added to the app, which is a daily interest on your uninvested cash. These interest rates may go up or down over time as the economic environment changes, but the cool thing is that you get paid out every single day if you're into that sort of thing. The app also lets you auto-invest, which is a great thing because then you can automatically invest a percentage of your paycheck into the thing every month. And so if you haven't yet started with investing and you want to give it a go, then you can download the app on the App Store and if you use the coupon code ALI, A-L-I, it will give you a totally free share worth up to 100 pounds. It's available on iPhone and Android and you can check it out by typing in Trading212 into your respective App Store. So thank you so much Trading212 for sponsoring this episode. I did an interview with Professor Steve Peters this morning, who I think has been on oh, your pod as well. Really? Uh, the chimp, about the chimp paradox. And we talked a lot about limiting beliefs, goblins, gremlins, like um, the limiting beliefs that, I, that imprint onto us in childhood that is, that is so hard to shake. Yeah. Um, I wonder for you, what are some of those limiting beliefs that you still struggle with?
1: Limiting beliefs. One of my limiting beliefs, and I don't know how interesting this is, is that I believe I'm not organised. And so that shows up in my life, and I've almost abandoned the will to change it. Mm. And as my life has become more optimised towards the things that I'm good at, there's less, if we think about the discipline equation, there's less reason to change it. There's less apparent reason to change it. So growing up in my home, it was a total mess. And the doors in my house had holes in them, like big holes in them, because just over the years we just like as you know, four kids in a house, parents aren't there, smashed up the doors. Um it looked like the the house of a hoarder. That's the environment I grew up in. There's almost something quite deep within me where today as an adult I feel comfortable with mess because I grew up in mess. So I see that reflected in my behaviour sometimes. Like I'm quite a messy person, and it's a reflection of home. So that's one of them for sure. Um, I have lots of other like insecurities, and um, I think a lot of like hardwired not enoughness mm. in me. That's like deep within me. That's awesome. it. Like I think I think growing up in you know it's funny because at the time I didn't know, but as I grew up as I grew up and I became an adult, I look back on how I felt going back to that signal of how you feel growing up in Plymouth in like 1994 where everyone is white everyone is like well most people are doing okay even my street was like middle class and nice our house was just destroyed at the time um and you understand the value of things by the context in which you see them so like on a menu if there's three steaks um then you'll assume that the, the top one is delicious and the bottom one isn't going to taste good and it's cheap and you'll therefore usually pick the middle one. If you remove the, one of those stakes, decision-making changes. Um, in the same way, I grew up in a street full of in in context full of white people who had more money than me. So I'd had more money than our family. Like the shame of when my dad was dropping me to school in that van in the morning, praying that the traffic lights would turn red as far from the school as possible so that no one would see the car we were driving in or my family. um, Like all those things, you reflect on those things and how, how enduring that feeling was throughout my life. Like no, pretty much, I think there was one kid, I think there's one kid in the like 16 years that I lived in that city, grew up, that knew where I lived. Imagine that. Because when people would drop me home, I would tell them to drop me At the very top of the hill, I would tell them a different street and I'd get out and walk it. And then there's no way I'd let someone at school come into my house and see that we lived in like, you know, Mm. in a mess. Um, And you imagine just that subtle, constant desire to avoid the shame you're feeling and to fit in chemically relaxing my hair until I was about 16 years old like if you look at the old pictures of me which we're in the vlog you see this kid that has like kept like I have straight hair and I've like, got this fringe and I've got like the skinny top on with the skinny jeans all of that shame and insecurity I think it permeates throughout my life a little bit but I think it's part of my my dra- ambition and I'm dry and my drive if I'm honest with myself I think it's why I've I work hard and I think it's why I often ask guests if they're driven or dragged, because I think part of me is being dragged. I've sometimes wondered this about you because, especially
0: like, you know, you guys have released a vlog now for three three weeks. And just like, every time I watch the vlog, I'm just like, wow, this guy's relentless. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you've already made the money. You've already had the success. You've got the, the biggest podcast in the world. Like, what are you doing it for? <laughs>
1: Um, so the reason I pause is because it's very easy to bullshit Mm. and I don't want to bullshit, but it's also hard to know the answer. And I think most of us, we get used to giving an answer to that question, but what I care a lot about whether it's true or not. And so I think if I was to hazard a guess at the truth, I would say it's a multitude of reasons. I would say on one hand, there's no greater feeling than doing something that people appreciate and adds value to someone else's life. There's no feeling like the feeling I experienced this morning when I walked into the office and the girl that grabbed me and said, I just quit my job. Literally this morning, I just quit my job and I told my boss in that interview why I was quitting and it's because of your podcast. I'm listening to this particular guest and they helped me with this thing. There's no metric that actually feels like... As good for the human being as that, the ego might love. Oh, we hit three million, subs- that million subscribers! I, it's funny. I walked into my team that day and go. I realize none of us care that we hit three million subscribers. I also don't care. It's important that we use this as a metric to understand that we've done we've done well as a team. But I realize none of us care because we're like feigning we're feigning caring. Who cares if you hit three million subscribers? It's one more than two two 9, 8. It's but it's nice to have milestones where we celebrate. That matters to me. It matters to me that we're creating stuff that's helping people. That really matters to me. On the other end, I do look at the metrics all the time, as I know you do, or at least you did. Uh, yeah, i stopped now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. I well, when we had a conversation yeah. where you—I you, remember very vividly you telling me that you were like you used to be like really obsessed with it yeah. all, and it wasn't wasn't great. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't like... So that's important. That I do. I still have a bit of that in me where like. It matters to me how the episodes perform in terms of numbers. I don't know, I don't know why, but um, it does. I want the episodes to do really well. And I want, I want things to grow and move forward and get bigger. I want that. Um, maybe that's the shame, like the, the kid again, trying to be enough. Um, why am I doing it? I believe in life to be happy. You have to kind of fulfill these five objectives in your profession. Number one, you need challenge, right? Things need to be, become incrementally more difficult to the level of appetite that you can take. That's why game in game psychology, every level gets harder. You're not going to do the same crossword on the same difficulty over and over again. You would lose motivation. Daniel Pink, his book is behind you, says this. They, they do it in studies. If it's the same difficulty, people lose motivation. So when you're building teams, the, the thing you've got to know as a CEO or as a founder is the depth of difficulty that every single member of your team is at. And if at one point, one of your team members isn't challenged enough, they will quit. You're about six months from them asking for a meeting. Okay. So keep them one foot out of their depth. And I have this mental model in my head of all my team members. And I actually sat here this morning with one of them this morning at uh, 9 a.m. this morning, who I knew was too comfortable. And my conversation with her this morning was, give me 48 hours. I'm going to return you to the state you were when we were working together in New York, where you are out of your depth. Because I know that's what you need. She didn't articulate that to me, but I knew it is. I know the reason why she's like, hmm feeling this is a one of my companies one of my my one of my companies is because she's not out of her depth anymore factor number two to be motivated and enjoy your work is uh what i call the progress principle sense of forward motion it's one of the laws in the book as well when they interview people in work and say what's your best day in work harvard business review found it was when it was on days where people had a sense of progress this is also what david brailsford speaks to um when he entered the British cycling team. Many people think of Sir David Brailsford, who took over that down and out British cycling team and made them the best to ever do it. They attribute the success of that to the fact that he cared about these 1% marginal gains, 100%. That is a huge part of it. But what Sir David Brailsford said to me, which I actually think is more important because it's the macro tailwind, is when we found those 1% gains, those small ways to improve something, making the water bottle one centimeter bigger, the pillow softer, The important part was the impact it had on people's motivation because, quote, we felt like we were going somewhere. Mm. Humans need that sense of we're going somewhere. So if you're a CEO, one of the most important things you should always do, which I try and do a lot with my teams naturally, is constantly remind the team of the fact that we are going somewhere. It's a feeling in the room. And so David Brailsford told me that when he could get that feeling into the room of we're going somewhere because those 1%... Gains are the easiest to find. It's hard to find a big gain in any pursuit. It's hard to, in what you do and what I do, finding those 100% gains, it's an accident. Focus on the smallest things, find it, enjoy the win together, which is like, oh my God, we just made this 1% better. There's a trackpad glued under the table you're at right now. And the trackpad is there because me and my team just found a 1% gain last week, where during the conversation with someone, sometimes they say amazing things and I want to write it down and just remember it because that might be the title, the thumbnail, the description, or whatever. And then after the conversation ends, I forget forget it. My team come up and say, what do you think of the episode? I don't have any notes, because I've had to pay attention. So you'll see a trackpad under the table where you are now. Can you feel it? Is it there? Maybe it was the trackpad oh, they yeah. removed. Yeah, there's can a you? little Velcro. Okay, that little so trackpad that, we, yeah. that, that was the trackpad. Yeah. So, so all can, I do tap- is I just tap it with my finger. And what it's doing is that system underneath the table is listening to every word we say, and it highlights it, so the AI will highlight it and send it off to my team. So afterwards I have all my and I just got to tap the bottom of the table. Good idea, let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great idea. (laughs) But but anyway, that's an example of a 1% gain we found as a team. And when we did that, we shared it with the whole team and and we enjoyed it and we're like, this is so awesome. And it created that impression that we're going somewhere. We made progress today. That's point number two. So you need to challenge yourself. You need a sense of forward motion. Number three, I'm gonna say is, um, I'm gonna say you need to be pursuing a goal in your life that is subjectively meaningful goes back to what we said earlier. Yep. If you interview all members of my team, and there's hundreds of people across different companies, but if you just focus on the podcast team where there's 25, 30 people, every single person will give a different reason as to why they work here. Mm. Holly will say it's because of this. I'll say it's because of this. Will will say it's because of the, the creativity and his love of production. I don't care what your reason is, as long as you've got one. Yeah. So you haven't got to give them all the same reason. You haven't got to align on reasons. They just got to find theirs. And you've got to help them find their reason. So that's point number three, if the goal is feels subjectively worthwhile to you. Number four, which is super backed by science, we just touched on it a little bit, is autonomy and control. Mm. Feeling like you have control and autonomy of your work. When people don't have that in their work, physiologically, they're more prone to disease. Um, Psychologically, they have tons of um, really difficult challenges. Um, so having control and autonomy over what you're doing is integral to feeling like a free animal that's not in a cage. And last one, maybe the most important of all, because we could all recount on times in our lives where we had the previous four but didn't have this one and the job and the work sucked, is you've got to be working with a supportive community of people that you like. Um, and that makes all of the other ones better. Makes all of the other four better. Notice that I haven't said, you know, I haven't said a particular career or a particular job you know, job or anything. If I have these five things in my profession, Steve will be balanced. And I've applied these five things to psychedelics, where I worked for a year, invested in the company of tie. We took the company public um, at a big valuation in June 2021, I believe. Um, I've applied it to Huel, to my businesses, to marketing, to software with ThirdWeb. Um, I'm applying it to podcasting, I guess, to business. Uh, I'm applying it to DJing. I'm applying it to the event businesses we we run. Um, I'm applying it to my production company, which we're doing shows on the BBC at the moment. Um, so the, the the subject doesn't matter. It's less important than what people think. I think everyone in this room and everyone listening to this now could be could find their passion in a multitude of industries if they had these five things. The subject matter is less consequential because I wasn't born to be a social media CEO. Yeah didn't exist when I was born. So how could I possibly, how could that possibly be my passion? But I have these five things. Mm. I've had those five things for a long time.
0: As you were saying, those five things, those are all five things that I talk about in my book as well. Ooh. Cause it's, cause mine is called feel good productivity. It's about what are the factors that make work enjoyable? And how do we add more of that into our, into what we do? So the framework that, that I use is the three Ps, okay. which is power, play, and people. Explain. So power is autonomy, control. Uh, power is also the sense of improvement and competence, like you're getting better at the thing. Initially, we we exploded this into like 10 different things. We're like, ah, 10 too many to remember. And then it was five because we had power, play, people, progress, and purpose. And we were like, oh, but like five Ps is a bit much as well. And like Dan Pink has already got the... Pro- eh. And then we turned it into three three Ps and just sort of shoehorned in the subheadings in there. And so power, play, and people.
1: Play interesting please explain play so in um power i fit in both autonomy and is it purpose i i fit both of them into there because you talked about the thing being something you well how did you describe it just a second ago.
0: Yeah. so so for, so for us power is um kind of a combination of taking ownership
1: autonomy uh, control
0: auton- aut- autonomy control and also um improvement like leveling oh, up, progress progress
1: uh, okay, like so getting po- better
0: at the thing um, and growing in the thing so gives I've, you that sense of empowerment
1: of my five, you've put control and autonomy and um, progress kind of together in power. Yes, exactly. So play. What's that?
0: Play is one that isn't in, that isn't in your five. Um, play is um, approaching work in the spirit of play, and I think that's not a thing that's required for something to be f- for for a job to feel meaningful. But it's definitely a thing. You know that second that second component of your discipline equation, mm-hmm. where the the pursuit of doing the thing is joyful in itself. And there was so many stories that we found, like Nobel Prize winners, Richard Feynman, who was burnt out Mm. with doing physics. And then one day he sees in the Cornell cafeteria, he sees like a student like throwing a plate up in the air. And he sees that the logo of Cornell University is like rotating at a slightly different rate than like the circumference of the plate. And he's like, huh that's weird. Why is the logo like wobbling at a different like rate than like the, the edge? And he uses that to model like thermodynamic equations and stuff and ends up ultimately winning the Nobel Prize. And he says in his autobiography afterwards that the thing that cured his burnout with physics, because he'd been doing it for such a long time in World War II, his wife had died, was finding that that sense of play back in it, that lightness and ease that you can approach work with to make it feel to make anything that you do feel more enjoyable. So play was a big part. and In fact, actually, play is chapter one in the book because we were like, we really want to lead with this philosophy that feeling good makes you more productive. Experiencing positive emotions in your work makes you more creative, makes you less stressed.
1: On the case of Richard Freiman mm. there, what was he experiencing in his work up until he saw that play? He was burnt out. He was, the work had lost meaning, I guess. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because he'd be so his burnout period was like post World War II. Like he'd worked on you know the U.S. defense thing. He worked on like the nuclear bomb. He'd he 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 had this meaningful goal to work towards. But then you know when he got his tenured professorship, he was like uh, his his wife had also just died. So obviously that kind of played a, played a role in it. And he was sort of feeling like oh, these equations that once brought me so much joy are now like they all feel meaningless. There you go. Until he went back to the plaything.
1: So if number yeah. four in mine was was subjectively meaningful. <clears throat> a goal that feel is subjectively meaningful to you. So that's where you kind of, I fit, that's the play part.
0: That is sort of the play part. Um, our final chapter is also about purpose um, and just sort of alignment and choosing goals that align with your core values. Mm-hmm. I didn't, Initially, purpose was the very first chapter because it was like, well, starting with why. But I think the problem with starting with why, which I will talk to Simon about if I ever meet him, <laughs> I think the issue with starting with why is that it can often seem overwhelming if someone's in a normal job that doesn't feel that meaningful or purposeful you tend to start with why and they're like, well, there's no, there's no purpose beyond the fact that it's a job. And it's like, I, tr- I applied to 50 jobs and it's the one that I got. And it's quite heavy to start with why in that context. And so we, instead we end with why to be like, Hey, once you've, once you've done all these things to make it not suck, once you've incorporated power and play and, and people into your work at that point, you've done everything you can. And now let's think about the purpose question. So factualizing exactly. <laughs> and if at that point it's still not working, then maybe it's time to quit the job. I know. Um, and then people is your point about
1: people. How exciting. So you've got power. Sorry, in the book, you'd start with yeah. play. Play, yeah. Power, mm. purpose, people. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, sh- I, sh- I should have done alliteration. I'm so stupid. <laughs> 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 alliteration nice makes things so much more easy to remember. Mm. Oh, fucking. Okay. Well, it's published now, so I'm fucked. Well. <laughs> 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 it's a good book. I've just taken so many notes. I love <laughs> I love a highlight. Thank of the you. Which one was? what You've read both of them, and yeah. it's very rare for people to actually read these books because mm. people buy them and then they just don't read them. Like I'm mm. guilty of that. Which one do you prefer, honestly? I, uh, hmm.
0: I actually think they were both very good at different stages of my life. So okay. the so the two takeaways I took from from the first one were basically the chi- the time chip thing, which I still mm. use um and also the quitting framework thing which yeah. i still use yeah uh what i took from this one was a reminder to take take better care of my health the 11 also laws you have about marketing were really helpful because i was like, highlighting the shit out of them being like send to jacob send to allison <laughs> which is super helpful <laughs> oh my god like friction adding friction yes and it's like it was very specific to business stuff yeah whereas in the first book it was more general
1: general life stuff it's so where um, i was at I yeah think. no exactly yeah. it's where you were at clearly as well yeah, yeah. so i think yeah. it's
0: like different books hit you at different times
1: yeah because I've i never said this before, but I like, I'm almost a little bit shy about the first book now because it doesn't represent who I am now. It's much more, you know, broad and kind of lifey and much more kind of opinions and vibes. Whereas I feel like the second one, the, the new one, is much more technical and much more like, here's how to do it. Very specific.
0: I like the yeah. specificity of it. Yeah. And it, and like, you weren't, you weren't hedging you were like you had an opinion on each one and i also liked how you named things and i was thinking oh shit i should have named more stuff in my book because uh, you know there was the thing where it, instead of using the word manifestation you called it like uh plan a something. never be a, be a plan b was yeah, plan a. Um,
1: the plan a chapter there's two there's one um, negative manifestation yeah like the power of negative manifestation there's another one where it's like
0: plan a thinking you
1: must be a plan a thinker yeah plan
0: a thinking It was like oh
1: plan a thinking what
0: a, good, what a good way of repackaging manifestation in a way, because I don't vibe with the word manifestation. And I. I suspect a lot of your audience don't either. Yeah. But plan A thinking, I was like, hell yeah, I'm a plan A yeah. thinker.
1: Well, you did the whole alliteration <laughs> thing. So yeah. you, you beat me there with the whole yeah, we play took, power purpose. Steal ideas from each other. Because you can't name my five in terms of the titles right now. But I can name your five, your four. Mm. Play, I can do them in order as well. Play, power purpose and people or did you put purpose at the end you said purpose at the end and we call so it, it alignment as uh, it, like, but well there you else? go yeah well Three i remember piece. yours yeah <laughs> so that's the problem anyway uh yeah we spent
0: so long trying to do like a b c d e and like autonomy and like, b <laughs> for, like c for competence d for drive e for something and it's like yeah like, could we get to fg it's so, like no let's just let's keep it simple
1: i really missed that i really missed the fact that alliteration is important for these new ideas and frameworks mm. that could have been in the story section the power of alliteration And the power of threes as well. You know that whole thing about like, you're an incredibly loyal, passionate, and empathetic friend. For some reason, when something is in threes, the brain just... I always speak in threes. Mm,
0: same. Yeah. We, this is our, our whole process for videos, for podcasts, for online courses. We always think, what is the three-part framework? You just did
1: that in three as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so good. Video, podcast, online courses. There's, there's a line I heard from a friend who works at uh, McKinsey, and he said that the trick that all management consultants use is that the client will ask them a question, and they'll say, well, there are three reasons. And then while they're saying the first one, they'll figure out what well, the second <laughs> <laughs> and the third one are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the,
1: power,
0: the power of threes. That's why we put purpose at the end within alignment, because we wanted three Ps and not four. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and so we have three... Like in my book, we have three parts, and each part, each part has three chapters. Ah, there's nine God, chapters yeah. in total. Oh,
1: God. This guy's got the three. Each
0: cracked. chapter also has three subheadings. Really? <laughs> and, uh, initially, we had like four or five. I'm like, nope, simplify, this only is three. getting weird now. No, it's a, a bit, bit it's a bit... Oh, it's a bit too meta. Um, one thing that... I, I have a bit of a bone to pick with you.
1: Okay,
0: because... Shit. So... I watched your first vlog episode and I felt very inspired. Everyone on our team loved it. We sent it around to each other. Like, oh my God, this is so good. Inspired us to start a vlog. And we were like, yeah, this weekly vlog is a great idea. It's like, initially like, we tried daily vlogging like last year, but like daily is too much. It's like, we were, we were scrambling for content. But then weekly we were like, that's a great idea. And so we we're very inspired after episode one. And then I watched episode two and then I felt depressed because it was just too good. And I was like, oh, why, should, why, why are we even bothering? Like, what's the point? Our vlog is going to be nowhere near as good as Steven's like, oh, it's a dragon's den. It's like, it was like half an hour long as well. It's like normally ours, this stuff is really long. And if, well, if he was doing three minute vlogs, then at least we add more value, but so much value in that as well. And I felt that sense of comparison and I felt like, oh, what's the point? And one of the things that you talk about a lot is, as everyone does, is uh, comparison. I think, I think it was in the first book, like comparison is the root cause of our loss of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. so i wonder if we can speak to that is is that something that you that you still struggle with this sort of comparing yourself to others and feeling as if like oh didn't do as good a job as
1: yeah i hope i i now believe that i hmm, do i compare myself to others again i want to pause to make sure we all do i think that's the first thing i have to say is it's human too and i've thought a lot about this actually i'm just going to go on a little bit of a tangent i'll come around the houses and then come back you when you said that were beating yourself up A little bit. Like, um, it's important to, the relationship you have with the feelings you have, to understand that all of those feelings are there for survival reasons. Mm. And your body and your mind is not against you. It's very, very much on your side. The problem is we live in a world now where your body is misaligned with the world we live in. So in the context of sugar, right? Once, the reason why we have sugar cravings is because If you came across berries on the Serengeti, let's say, 10,000 years ago, eating those berries kept you alive. So your brain is attuned to eat more of them. The reason why we struggle to lose weight and lose belly fat is because the amount of belly fat you had correlated to how long you had left to live. You know, so your body has this, the brain is trying to defend your weight. So losing weight is difficult because if you go for a big run, your body will then overcompensate with hunger and make you eat more. So that's why they often say cardio is not a great way to lose weight. You'll just end up eating more. The body is on your side. Comparison is important, really, really important and useful. And it's ingrained in all of us because we don't have time to make decisions about things in the real world. So our brain is using shortcuts and comparison is a wonderful shortcut to understand what something means, the value of something, and it's hardwired into you to help you to survive, as is your loving of sugar, your need for status. Um, Again, important for you to fit into your tribe. If you were kicked out of your tribe, then you would die. Your body would go into self-preservation. Your stress levels would go up. You'd sleep less. You'd live seven years less longer. So all of these things that we fight with we shouldn't be fighting with ourselves, it's just a case the world has changed and the body hasn't evolved to, to deal with it. Comparison's one of them, it's it's ingrained in us. Um, we all have it. I'm sure I compare myself every day to everybody I meet and I see this guy on Instagram with great muscles and I go fuck, Jesus, what am I doing over here with this? You know, I'm doing that at all times and I have empathy with myself for that. Cause it's important to start with a place of empathy towards that and not like self resentment. Okay, so it's normal to compare ourselves it's not normal to live in a world where we see 7,000 people a day on a glass screen and the brain can't compute that information. It's not meant to. It's not normal to have a fridge. The brain wasn't designed in a world with, for, with fridges. Do I compare myself? Yes. Um, do I, how I interpret the comparison is the key part. So I look at things you've done over the years and I, I go, man, that's so dope. We can do that. I look at what Mr. Beast has done and go, I'm like studying this guy mm. and I'm learning and I'm going, man, this guy's a gold standard and I'm learning from him and I'm, you know, I write about it, him a little bit in one of the laws in the book about the first five seconds and um, and I look at Rogan and I go, man, this guy just sits there and does no preparation and then just like talks about like an anthill with like this super smart person or he'll get his mate on from the comedy club. That is insane how he does that. So I hope, I hope that my comparison results in inspiration and not like jealousy or resentment or any of those negative, mm. self-destructive, unproductive feelings. And I think that can be a practice. I think you can realize that life really isn't like a zero-sum game, and that like everyone can win. Um, and that from from them winning, they they can they can teach you something if you're there to listen. Most people lean out when someone is doing well, so they'll like they'll attack, criticize, or um, or try and diminish that because of the the dissonance it, it creates what you describe there is cognitive dissonance to some degree like mm. what i mean by that is when something you observe is at odds with your sense of self identity or what you believe about the world mm. and it causes the psychological discomfort if you're going that's really good like we we're, we're not going to be able to do that there's different ways you can deal with the dissonance one way is you can say yeah but he's got a team of 30 people mm. That that is a great way to deal with the dissonance. It kind of like diminishes what you've seen and it makes it makes you at ease, right? He's got 30, yeah, but he's got 30 people. Or you could say something else, right? The harder thing to do, and I think the most important thing to do is what I call in the book, the, um. I'm going to butcher his name, but I'll call him the president of Israel did, when Reagan, who was his friend, went to that Nazi um, burial site. And obviously, being being Jewish watching Reagan who was meant to be your friend go to that burial site when reporters asked him you know what do you think of Reagan going to that where you know where there's there's Nazis buried and he says when a friend makes a mistake the friend remains a friend and the mistake remains a mistake what he's doing there is he's doing the hard thing of holding the dissonance separate like holding these two facts it separately he's not diminishing it he's not saying Reagan's not my friend or yeah but it he didn't go to a burial site where the bad Nazis were, were buried. He held the two things together. And in doing that, you ha- you, you create enough space to learn and to observe mm. and for nuance, which is rare in this world. The thing we're all doing at the moment is just diminishing the other side. We're not listening. So going back to it, if you're able to hold that dissonance, it becomes really productive and useful for you, which most of us are not, not able to do, especially if we have low self-esteem or we have those other issues because the dissonance feels a little bit too close to home. It actually says to us, I'm not good enough. And that's a very deep thing to experience in in the light of someone else's success. For their success to convince you that you are a scumbag and that what that seven-year-old said to you in school is true about your sense of self-worth is a lot to take. So if you have low self-esteem, I think reducing the dissonance by slamming the person, being pessimistic, justifying it away is much more likely. So you interview
0: a lot of kind of very successful people do you ever find yourself in that unhealthy comparison mode or have you gotten so good at the sort of comparison equals inspiration rather than comparison equals envy that it's just i've never sat with
1: someone and thought man i'm so jealous of you but i've sat with so many people and thought every day i think i will never be as good as you at what you do i will never have the knowledge recall the intelligence the perspective the articulation i will never get there i will never be And I I wish, I wish I was capable of it, but I, I'm able to separate out my admiration Mm. and my aspiration. They are two different things, which we often conflate. I can sit with someone and go, you're the go, you're the best to ever do it. You're so much better than me at that thing. And also not then aspire to become them. Sure. Um, And I think actually that's, that's because I, at this chapter in my life now, like I'm okay with who I am. So... I can admire. (laughs) I can admire, like, I can just do the admiration part without turning it back on myself and saying, what does that say about me? And I I see it in some of my friends, one friend in particular that I have. If I said to this one friend that I have in particular, I go, they go like, what are you doing? So I was like, I just went to the gym. Immediately, they will actually hear that as, why didn't you go to the gym? Mm. So I can't even have a conversation with them about like, oh, I went, I had it yesterday in the car. She said to me, um, oh where have you been I said I just ran to the gym and then I da, 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 and I watched her face and I mean she goes I'm going to be going to the gym soon and what in that moment what happened is she actually she heard my experience and she heard my discipline or she heard my goal and it was it was so where she is in the, her life at the moment is she's quite self-conscious and she's struggling with self-esteem so she, what she experienced was extreme dissonance, which was, why didn't she heard it? Her brain translated it to, why didn't you go to the gym? You're not good enough. Mm. What I said was, I just been to the gym this morning. Mm. And that's, again, it goes back to the interpretation based on our self-esteem for these events. That's an extreme example, but it's kind of the same thing in terms of comparison. That's the extreme example Mm. where someone can just tell you what they did and you actually hear why didn't you? You're you're not good enough. Yeah. Nice. That's good stuff. Um, can we talk about your
0: buckets? So, you, yeah. sort of filling filling the buckets in the right order. Um, there's no alliteration there either. <laughs> um, I should have done alliteration. If, yeah. So I I really vibe with that story. Um, I wonder if you can you can tell the story of how you, how you came to come across these these five buckets.
1: Yeah, you know the person that I'm re- referring to. And I have to say, there might be a little bit of folk tale to this because this person said it to me. And the the individual that I'm talking about is, um, they're very good at storytelling. Mm -hmm. But what they said to me was they were in San Francisco and they might, yeah, they were in San Francisco and a sweaty man came, came jogging past. And this sweaty man was kind of like short on breath and he was explaining like that he was building rockets and doing these microchips and these monkey brains and all building tunnels and all of these crazy abstract things. And then he ran off. And as you hear that story objectively, you go, that is a lunatic that has escaped from an asylum. But in reality, it was Elon Musk. And the only reason that when I say it it was Elon Musk, it suddenly becomes believable, is because Elon Musk has spent his life filling these five buckets. So Elon could say anything. He could create any ambition and people would sell their houses to invest in his ideas because he is someone who has five full buckets. The last one of which is maybe in question, but five full buckets. The first bucket is knowledge. He's committed his life. And there's actually a side story to this as well, which is um, when I met a famous monk in New York City, I was with Jay Shetty. For the first couple of years of my life, I was dealing with this kind of mental conundrum as to whether... Committing my life to building businesses, which would ultimately enrich myself, was that a worthier cause than me going back to the village in Africa and saving just one life with the skills that I have, right? Like what was more of a worthy pursuit? So when I was in New York and Jay introduced me to this monk and there's this big room of people, I got to ask one question. So I asked that question. I said, like, if I could go to Africa, and I was like 22, 23, I was young, I could go to Africa and like commit my time to saving one life or I could carry on building these businesses. Which one is more worthy? Which one should I be doing? And the monk said to me, you cannot pour out for others that in which you do not have yourself. And so what I interpreted from that is filling these five buckets. First one is your knowledge, which Elon certainly has a very full bucket. It's important context here as well. This first bucket of knowledge is... Is always growing bigger. There's more knowledge to acquire. It's like a bucket that is increasing in size as more knowledge is available. First bucket is your knowledge. The second bucket is your skills. Nothing in life can ever empty these two buckets. The, the remaining three buckets that I'm going to describe can be emptied. Things can go wrong. You can get fired from your job, professional earthquakes. But these first two buckets, no one can ever empty them, your knowledge and your skills. And skills are really applied knowledge. So when you learn something and then you apply it, we call it a skill, which is kind of what we've been talking about with like knowing something, but then doing it is completely different. You can read about exercise, but then doing, knowing how to do the squats and stuff comes from the application of the knowledge, which is a skill. These are the cent- most important buckets in your life because when these overflow, they fill the other three buckets of your resources, um, your network, and your reputation. Now, these three things, can, can, these buckets can empty at any time. And if you're young and you're thinking, okay, which job should I take you should, you should make the decision through this frame because I talk about one of my team members in the very early stages of my entrepreneurial career who decided to leave our company because he was offered a great job title and a big paycheck, which is reputation and resources. But he hadn't filled his skills and knowledge bucket. He'd kind of like managed to convince someone that he was capable of being a CEO of a very big company even though he hadn't didn't have the knowledge and skills and it's kind of it's quite obvious what happens there life will catch you out if you don't have the knowledge and skills to meet the situation you're in what I'm fortunate for is in my life I spent maybe three to four years working in call centers picking up the phone calling Dorothy at 9 p.m to sell like you know artificial grass windows doors conservatories kitchens because it filled up these this knowledge and skills bucket profoundly i could have gone and jo- got a more glamorous job but choosing a, a job at that early age that was focused on my knowledge and skills not that paid me more or that had higher status amongst my friends is the reason why i was able to launch businesses and do well at a young age so i would just impress upon people to really focus and prioritize those first two buckets especially when you're young and especially when they're empty
0: yeah this is a uh... <sighs> A thing that I've I've heard from a lot of um, a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, I ask the question of if someone's young and they want to start their first business, what do you recommend? And a lot of people say that if you want to start a business, it is very worthwhile getting a job at a startup first yeah. that has like fewer than ten people because you will learn so much stuff and you're being paid to learn. Mm-hmm. And the objective of that is for you to just, you know, as you would say, f- fill up the, those buckets or or like add stuff to them of knowledge and skills. Yeah. And then when you start your business, you're way way more ahead of the curve than if you just quit your job start a business completely from scratch and now you're having to fill the, the the skills and the knowledge while also not having any money coming in that's like a harder place to be
1: 100 percent, and it's like the cheapest way to fail right it's the cheapest way to observe failure we talked about how beliefs are first first party experience them yourself with your own eyes like you saw your doctor friends unhappy um and we talked about the importance of like you know beliefs coming from experiments you run Being outside of your zone of comfort. A startup is that environment exactly. Cheapest way to fail, cheapest way to get that information, to see it as close as you possibly can. In a big corporate, you might be cloaked from it. So many people, so much responsibility. The failure kind of happens somewhere at the top, and it's, you know, you don't see the consequence of it. And also sometimes there's not a consequence of it in a big corporate. You know, it doesn't cost the company the the lights. Um, but in a startup you get all of that without the failure being, you know, it's a low, low cost way to fail, yeah. Mm. Nice.
0: Um, Law 22, you must become a plan A thinker. Interesting. What is a
1: plan A thinker? Um, I describe plan A thinking as... Really interestingly, I'm like making a bunch of connections here because it kind of links back to what we said about discipline and prioritization. You know, our time is competing with a series of other things that we want to do. Um, the problem is the s- studies in the stats show that if you give someone in a study... An alternative, you give them, you even let them think about an alternative, they are less motivated for the primary objective. So, the studies that I talk about in the book are they get people to sit down and they say, This is the goal. And if you do this goal, you'll get a candy bar, let's say. Then they ask the people to do the task. In a second study, they say, sit down, this is the goal. If you complete it, you get a candy bar. But just think about another place here on campus that you could get a candy bar. Just the thought of where else they could get a candy bar distorts their motivation and reduces their motivation towards the goal. So that the evidence is really clear. When you have a plan B, it only detracts from your motivation and your commitment towards the plan A. Plan Bs are detrimental in the context of motivation towards a plan A. Um, and I reflect on my own life and Again, I didn't have a plan A. When I called my mother and I said, I'm dropping out of university and I was shoplifting those pizzas at 18 years old to feed myself, um, it was like survival. Like I was either going to be successful or I was going to be successful. There was not a plan B option. I couldn't, I didn't have anywhere else to run to. Mm. So I think that focus, and you know, I talk about um, the story of the plane crash in the book, which is always one of my all-time favorite stories. Um, that focus enabled me, it was just at 10% more wind in the sails towards where i wanted to go and sometimes 10 percent is the difference Mm. it was just that you know on that day where it's really difficult and there's so many reasons to quit and if i had a comfy place to run to that would have played on my subconscious and maybe tempted me to run to run to that soft comfortable place not having that put that energy back into the mission and that's kind of what i speak about when i'm talking about planning thinking it's it's removing the alternative so that you can use all of your energy towards the main goal yeah there's a remarkable power and focus
0: Um, we've found this in our team recently, like it's so tempting. There's the infinite list of things that we could do. And then we'll be like, yeah, let's do all of this stuff. And then it's like, we're making 1% progress in like a dozen directions. But when we focus in like the one or two things that really matter, then we're able to make more progress in those areas. Mm -hmm. And so one thing we've now done, we work in six week cycles and every week, uh, every, every six weeks, everyone on the team just picks one quest. The, the one thing that they're going to do in the next six weeks that's going to move the needle in their particular area, which we we found super helpful. Um, I love that. Again, when, when I when I look at your vlog and, and see what you're up to, doing loads of different things. <laughs> um, you've got the various companies, you've got the podcast. It seems like you're out at like random times of the night, mm-hmm. three podcast guests in one day, and then like a 3,000 people or like in the evening. There's a lot going on. How do you think about where you're spending your energy and focus
1: so i have to say that i'm struggling with it Mm. so i think it's important because i think i think it's important to be honest like i've overextended myself definitely in my life i've done i've taken on too many things which probably means six to twelve months ago i said yes to things i should have said no to i like deferred them to a future steve who i didn't appreciate i didn't appreciate the context he was going to be living in so i've definitely overextended myself um I definitely struggle with it. I can do it in bursts, but I can't do it consistently. I can't be consistently intense. Mm. So this chapter of my life is very intense. I came off the back of Dragon's Den. The with Dragon's Den is it can takes my, my, all my time away. So everything has to fit into the residual time. And the residual time isn't enough to record my podcast, to run the businesses, to invest, to do all the things I have to do within media and whatever else. So I'm struggling with it. Um, the struggle means sometimes I'm falling asleep at 3am and I'm like, I'm tense. I'm like, there's like an angst to me. Like I'm tense. My brain is, da-da-da-da. and then, you know, I'm trying to have a relationship as well. So I'm struggling with it. So I've got, there's a problem here. So I want I want to say that because I don't want anyone to think I've got it cracked. Um, the important thing that I can do to control it is to have a clearer framework of, of what I say yes and no to. Um which goes back to our discipline equation thing, and also goes back to this quitting and starting thing. Like, you've got to be able to say no to a lot of things in order to say yes to them. Saying no and yes have an equal importance in life. And then the bigger overarching thing, which I think most people are aware of, is there's actually just a few, a couple of things that I'm, I should be doing with my time. And they tend to be the biggest things and the smallest things. Mm, what do you mean? So, as a CEO of a company... There's two areas where you can, act, where only you can do the thing that adds value. So it's like the big stuff, right? Like strategy and all that stuff. All the stuff in the middle, everyone else can do. There's people that can do that. And then the small thing, and I say small because it seems small, not because I think it's small, which is going over to Berta's desk and saying, happy birthday. Coming from me, that means a lot to Berta. I realize that. Mm. And no one else can go over to Berta's desk and say, happy birthday from Steve. And create that same impact that I have on her, which is like letting her know that I know it's her birthday and it matters to me. In that, so I do the really big things, and then I do the really small things. And also within that, there's I have like very limited amount of skills. And this is not me being like humble or whatever. I'm very comfortable with the fact that most things I'm bad at: maths, organisation, I said to you, messy operational stuff, process stuff. I'm bad at all of that stuff. I never do it. I never try finance-related stuff. Don't even look at it. Not my problem. Thankfully, my older brother works in my company full-time now. So, and he's a math genius, as I think I explained earlier. But there's this little thing here where that's me. That's where, that's the thing that Steve is good at. And that should be the thing where I'm allocating most of my proverbial chips in a day. My 16, well, let's say I'll give nine hours, let's say I'll give 12 hours to work a day. My... I should spend those 12 chips in work doing that thing that only Steve can do, which is hard to explain, but it's kind of like linked to marketing. It's really an understanding of human beings and like, um, yeah. And visionary vision stuff, like knowing, knowing it's a philosophy thing. It's like, I talk about the, in the philosophy section in the book, like that philosophy towards work, which is the one percents, the experimentation, giving that philosophy to a team of people so that we, we we find the right answers before other teams is my thing team culture and team philosophy and then the marketing bits i'm good at as well but nothing else i don't need yeah. to be good at anything else because you've got you've got the podcast you've
0: got flight story you've got third web you invest in a bunch yeah, of companies fund, which um, require you to get input on them and attend board meetings and stuff like
1: you you know we do a lot of I'm on a couple of boards yeah. that matter to me. Healing company. Um, I did a tie for a year. The psychedelic business for a year, and yeah. then yeah, those are like my professional things that are occupying my time. And the CEO, yeah, which yeah, you said I mean, at the start, which is like yeah, takes a lot of time. So, I guess my question
0: is why bother continuing with flight story and third web and investing and all this stuff it i mean from the outside it seems like Diary of a ceo is the main thing but obviously you're less public about what what goes on with the other businesses
1: it's a very good question i have a disease of i have the disease of entrepreneurship mm. and i have the disease of self belief and i have the disease of curiosity and as those three things collide you need an antidote to the disease, which should be focus and saying no to things and the someday shelf where I think I talk about my first, I don't even know where I talked about it, because, but just the shelf where you have a great idea and you believe you can do it and you believe it matters and you just fucking put it on the shelf. Mm. And then if it jumps back off the shelf, you pick it back up and you put it back on the shelf. And then if it keeps jumping off the shelf, maybe for 12 months, then you go, okay, right, guys, right, priority. Um, so with that, with those three diseases, disease of entrepreneurship, the disease of self-belief and the disease of curiosity, um, when things happen, I have a desire to build in, the, in that area. So when the blockchain conversation began, I had a real desire to build. It's the same reason why I went into a, a Thai life sciences and spent a year working on taking a psychedelics bit business public and learning about all of the clinical data around psilocybin and magic mushrooms and ketamine and ibogaine and what, going through all of the, that research paper and then figuring out how I could use that to tell the story of the mental health movement through the lens of psychedelics and constructing everything. I remember writing the script for the IPO video. It IPO'd it's worth 3.2 billion. And I was fascinated. This is what when I was talking about these five principles of loving work, it doesn't matter the subject. Mm. Subject is inconsequential. What matters is that um that I care. And that's why, because I have that disease. And sometimes I can't I can't quell quell it. So it turns into a company. Huh. That's what happened with Flight Story and Third Web. I, I love marketing. I love psychology and business. I used to steal the textbooks for psychology. And what is psychology and business? It's marketing. That's what it is. And with ThirdWeb, I was fascinated by fascinated by the blockchain. So I built started a company there. Called the smartest guy I knew. Started chatting to him about it for six months. And then that led to ThirdWeb. If
0: you had, let's say, I don't know, an extra 500 million in the bank, mm. to what extent would how would how would you change how you spend your
1: time such a good question um (laughs) i would i believe i would and i might be lying to myself because we all bullshit ourselves sometimes i believe i would stop Mm. okay so if it was right now if you give me 500 million right now in the bank um versus I wasn't currently doing anything and I was starting from zero. Two different answers. Sure, yeah. Let me answer if I was starting from zero. Yep. If I was starting from zero and there was nothing in my life, there was no podcast, there was no businesses, third web flight story, all of it's gone, I would start a media company. That does pretty much what Diary Visea is doing. Mm. And I'd make it, um, I would have loads of podcasts all around the world with lots of different wonderful creators that I believe are making the world better and have important opinions to share. And I'd be running one of the biggest media companies in the world. That's what I'd be doing. Because I say this because doing the podcast is my ikigai. And so I would just do more of that. And for anyone that doesn't know what an ikigai is, it's a sort of Japanese phrase for when you find the thing that kind of provides you with the most fulfillment in life when it meets these four criteria of, and I might butcher this, so help me here, Ali, because I know you know it. The first one is something you believe you can be good at. The second one is something that pays you third one is something you enjoy and the fourth one is something that you believe is of service to others now doing the podcast is the first thing i've done in my life that really feels like that Mm. it feels like it completes the ikigai so if you gave me 500 million and i had none of these other things going on in my life i would do more of that okay
0: what about scenario two where you do have all all the other things
1: I would take the money yep. and I would invest it into my companies. <laughs> okay. I'd back myself. Mm-hmm. I'd invest. I'd get a hundred million today, and I'd put it into Flight Story um, and make that the greatest marketing business in the world, the greatest sort of agency in the world. Take another hundred million, put it into Third Web, so we win that game we're, we're playing there yeah. within Web three. Um, I would take a hundred million, I put in Diary of a CEO. Um, and within Diversity, we have this really nice philanthropy, charitable initiative. I'm doing this initiative with the Red Cross at the moment, called this cash card thing. So I'd invest in that it's for refugees and disaster-stricken areas. Yeah, I wouldn't need the rest. I, uh, I don't know, put it in a bank or put it in a, a high so growth fund.
0: At this, um, this uh, Tony Robbins event, I was at last week. It was a uh, business mastery. So, was it? Know, it was really good, yeah. um, interesting, very interesting from a, like a meta perspective of like how he does events and stuff but also some genuinely like really helpful like advice on growing businesses. And one of the main objectives of the, of the event was to take people from being operators to owners, where an owner can have freedom from fle- flexibility, can grow, that can, their businesses can grow, they can build the empire, but they've got operators in place for the various teams and stuff doing the doing. Yeah. And one of the things he was saying um, was sort of splitting up people into three archetypes. There's the archetype of the artist, who believes in the work for the sake of the craft? Yeah. There's the archetype of the manager slash leader. Yeah. There's the person who loves to build systems. And then there's the archetype of the entrepreneur, who loves the thought of building something from scratch and taking risks and making making all that happen. And I very much resonated with the artist thing, where my answer to if I if I won the lottery, I'm like, great. All I'm going to do is learn cool stuff and make videos about it because that's my icky guy. But it sounds like for you, if you won the lottery, you had like well, the, the the lottery times five. It sounds like you're more of the entrepreneur and that yeah. you you enjoy the idea of like building companies and taking the risk and growing them.
1: Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, but I, I can resonate with what you said about the artist as well. Because if you look at the Diary of SEO live show where we spent 700,000 pounds and we made 700,000 pounds. So we broke even, um, it took several months of my life. There was no financial reward on offer. But I love music. Same reason I have I started DJing a year ago, two years ago now. Um, and I love the creative element of creating something that makes people feel something. So if you observe what I do on a daily, if you observe the conversation me and Will, who produces the vlog, had last night, I mean, we were sat where you're sat, right? So we were sat there. And what I'm talking to Will about, I think, a lot is like the creativity, the story arc, the art the, how i was talking to him about dave at home or like the 16 year old in zimbabwe who clicks on the video and the experience and the way we want her to feel and that's like one of the things that i do in all my companies is i'm i'm like when you see our trailers for the podcast or whatever i'm heavily inv- and is the genius right and is a genius give him the credit um but i see every single one and i And we obsess over every single one. If you came to my live show, it's like, I mean, how do I describe it? 40 person choir on stage with a huge band and visuals and the new show, we've got sound effects and I've spent the time on like the lighting effects to immerse you. So you think you're going through the seasons of life. So the room gets cold, then it gets hot. And then—and the projections across the wall and the violinist and the orchestra for this show that we've got and the choir and I've picked every song and... And and how it all comes together to tell a story that makes you feel something so deep in your chest that you want to cry or you want to stand up and, you know, almost, mm. you know, that's the stuff I love. That's the stuff I love. And it links to my love of psychology somehow. Um, I'm not good at, like, drawing or painting. Mm. So when I thought of artists, I thought of, like, drawing or painting or these geniuses you see, like Fred again, who's like, and it's like a musical genius. I'm not that, but I love things. I love knowing how the things we create impact humans at a profound and deeper level. If that's creativity, if that's what artists do, then I can resonate with that. Um, when, when I look at Elon, I see like an engineer entrepreneur. When I look at myself, I see someone that like loves music and and the way that you can change a story arc to make someone feel something um, and to move them in a way. So. My team know it like titles thumbnails uh trailer stuff story arc of the episodes any video any of my companies have ever made for any announcement ever um i do the storyboard mm-hmm. i do you know and he's laughing my, will is laughing at my team because i'm like obsessed with it yeah so whether i'm good at it or not is another question but i love it <laughs> you know whether i'm good at it is I don't know, but because art is such a subjective thing, but I love that stuff, and I actually, I actually never related to being a creative. I never thought I was creative ever, but it's from, and I don't even know if I quite call myself a creative yet.
0: Mm. Oh yeah, I don't vibe with the word creative either. I've I've always thought of myself as not particularly creative. I think I just take ideas from sources and connect them and apply my own synthesis to it which some people say is creativity but it doesn't like to me creativity feels like drawing an art which I've, I've always been bad at
1: mm. if i wasn't an entrepreneur the next most obvious thing for me to be is like a movie director mm. that's like or it would be a therapist now there is actually i actually did get, spend many hours looking for a course i could do on a psychology degree that I could do that would allow me to become a therapist mm-hmm. like 6 months ago oh not like <laughs> not like not like when i was younger i mean yeah. like i'm like looking now for these like out of you know where well, you don't have to go to the university you could do it at home because i'm so fascinated by people and why they do what they do yeah. as you can probably tell if you listen to the diary of a ceo that i thought you know what it would be good to have some kind of qualification in that so if i wasn't a therapist and if i wasn't an entrepreneur then i would be a movie director Because I love how you can tell a story that makes someone feel something. How you create that story arc and surprise. And yeah.
0: Interesting. Um, Final couple of things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, One is that, you know, something that I struggle with is that I'd love to get your take on is when there's lots of stuff going on um, and it can sometimes, like, like balancing that with, for example, the relationship with my girlfriend, seeing my friends, seeing my family, Mm. those things that are not in the work category, but the work category can just take over because of all the trips and all the cool stuff going on and all the, this person's in town, let's grab dinner with them. Oh, no, that's date night. Like, do you find, how how do you manage that balance between the work stuff, which is obviously continues to explode for you at a ridiculous level with like real life, like friends, family, relationship?
1: How are you doing with it? Struggling?
0: Uh, I am... I think I, I was struggling. I've, I've created rules. Mm-hmm. Like Mondays and Thursdays is always date night and that's non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. Even if like, I, I've, 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 I've had to say to others, like, even if Elon Musk is in town and wants to go on a podcast and my girlfriend can't do like anything other than the Thursday night, I'd be like, cool.
1: You're, let's you're lying to my face. <laughs> <laughs> so you, are lying. Myself, <laughs> <laughs> you are lying to my face. If um, Elon was in town and want to come on my podcast, I'd be like, babe. <laughs> yeah,
0: <that's> what, baby. <laughs> it's babe. You can come
1: and watch. Yeah. We can do. We can eat while I do it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> setting
0: so I've, I've been trying to figure out like what are the rules because i find having rules in place makes it easy to say yes or no to things yeah but again it's a it's a constant battle. it's okay again.
1: to say it's a constant battle and you struggle with it mm. I, I i feel the same way i really struggle with it and i'm trying to make sure i've got a different decision framework for different goals in my life in some areas of my life you think about productivity as we would define it you know, within society. So if you think about productivity and then you can measure it by certain OKRs or metrics mm. or whatever. And then I've learned over time to apply a different measurement framework to my relationship with my girlfriend, which is no framework at all. Mm. No no measurement at all. And, um, and just going back to the like poker chip analogy, the whole idea of you get these 16 chips if you've spent eight sleeping you don't want to you need to place them intentionally against your values and the things that matter to you so we both agree that our girlfriend and our relationships really matter to us so focus on the allocation that you're giving to the thing that matters to you and make sure it's in balance with the allocation of the other things that matter to you and when i say balance that doesn't mean it's equal but it means that you achieve harmony Hmm. so balance work-life balance is a load of nonsense right it's a load of like it's really unhelpful because it it implies, like imposter syndrome is a really unhelpful frame, it implies that you're trying to balance the scales, like 50 50 grams on each side. You're not. You're trying to find harmony, which is where you feel good in this context. You feel good about your life. Mm. You know, you don't feel like you're sacrificing anything that's integral to your contentment and happiness. That's what I'm trying to do. I don't have balance at all. I'm not trying to find balance. I'm trying to make sure I'm in harmony with my relationship. And that is an ongoing dialogue And that's ongoing check-ins to make sure that harmony is there. Um, But it's a struggle and it comes in seasons. It's what a lot of people have taught me, is that you don't have work-life balance, you have seasons of life. And in this season of life, you might be over-indexing or over-prioritizing this goal more. But then when you become a dad, Ali, as I'm sure we will both become in the next, you know, five, ten years if we want to, um, you're going to go into a different season of life. And then it's going to shift a little bit. And that's okay. You know, that's okay. Mm. And I would also, I think it's important because there'll be some people that are listening to this that are like, happy workaholics. Fine. Good. Because the key word there in the North Star is the happy word. Mm. So if you're a happy workaholic and you genuinely know you're happy, you're not being dragged by an insecurity that you're, you're, you're quenching through this obsession with work. If you're a happy, peaceful, content, fulfilled workaholic, All power to you. You're killing the game. If you're an unhappy workaholic, there's a problem and you're out Mm. of harmony. Um, So also have empathy for yourself if you're a happy workaholic because the world will try and demonize you. Oh my God, Ali, you're so toxic. But fuck them. Listen to the signal inside of you. Like, am I happy? And I think I'm a happy workaholic. And I've created a harmony Mm. with my girlfriend where our relationship is good. And I and I can be intense in the way I want to be in, in, in my work, um most of the time. Right now, I mean I've overextended, as I said. Mm. But most of the time, as me and we we zoom out on the you know, the four years we've been together, we're good. Nice. Does Perfect. that help at all?
0: It does, yeah. Okay. It's helpful. Okay. I think that's sort of how I think about it as well. Um sort of almost like <laughs> You know, balancing on a tightrope it's it's less yeah. about being rigid but it's actually about like swaying one way and yeah. another way and then rebalancing when you notice you're yeah you'll have, sure. huh? you'll have a bad week
1: you'll have a bad week and you'll know you've had a bad week yeah, in terms like, of like you're yeah. just fucking hell. I've paid no attention to each other mm. we feel disconnected you can, you'll feel the frustrations lingering mm. in the relationships something will happen in the bedroom like in the bedroom or the kitchen and it'll become so much of a bigger issue but it's actually because last week you were really disconnected that mm. check-in process is so key yeah are you a think- good communicator with her? um i think
0: we are have definitely gotten better at that over time um we have like check relationship check-ins and stuff which really? are good systems because i like systems um as does she which is nice uh and you know where we ask questions like how's the relationship been for you this week what's or what are three things uh that you appreciate about me this how week?" how do you do that oh like, we have we have a notion page with a template this is out of control it's been going on for the last you two have years a notion page. you've got the toggle it's actually really good and she was the one who put it together rather than me because you know i was it's so good yeah and it's like, you know, what's what's one thing I did that made you feel loved, appreciated, or respected? And then so the first half of the review questions are like, you know, the, the nice stuff. And then it goes on to, you know, what's one area in which, you know, you felt I did something that made you feel a little bit bad? Even if it's really minor, you know, let's just talk about it. And in those check-ins, the stuff that would otherwise feel too minor to bring up a day-to-day, because it's like, oh, it's minor. It's like, I'm not gonna bring that up. Mm. It's like those little things. There's a good chance to bring those little things up and to discuss them in the in the light of day. And usually we find that like having, having a couple of days distance from it, like when the thing, if, if the thing is very big, we'll discuss it when it happens. But
1: if it's not, you
0: know, we'll discuss it in a relationship review over dinner at like a nice place. Like,
1: I'm really cu- curious here. Yeah. Who adds to the Notion document and when?
0: Mm, so, uh, we, so we So it's a shared Notion workspace where yeah. we're both on it. And when we know it's a review date, so Monday, so like every other Monday-ish, we try and do that's the review time in reality it ends up being like once every three weeks or so um so one of us will take the ipad or the laptop or the phone worst case scenario and then if it's a laptop or an ipad i'll type because i type faster if it's a phone we'll just sort of pass it around and take turns because phones are annoying but we find so we've we've got like the notes stretching back the last two years because we've been together for two years now and it's 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 really nice looking back and we sort of like note down any sort of major disagreement we have and call it a gate Like, you know, there was, I don't know, France gate and like Tenerife gate and, you know, stuff like that, where it's like, oh, it's interesting to look back on these big arguments that we had and like the less the the takeaways from them to make the relationship better.
1: So interesting. And then is there a conclusion to each question? So if you say, you know, you said this to me in the kitchen last week and it really irked me because it triggered me in this way. Do you then write a conclusion next to it or anything?
0: Uh, We write action points.
1: Action points. Yeah. It's
0: like in future, this is the thing. Like there was one time we went on holiday together. I thought it was going to be a working holiday because I was like, hey, I've got, I've got my book deadline. This is a work holiday. She was like, cool, you know, that makes sense. Turns out my definition of work holiday is I work 14 hours a day and we, <laughs> we grab dinner together. Her definition of a work holiday is we work for four hours in the morning and then we go and go sightseeing. We only realized that like five days into the holiday. And so our action point from after the conversation around that was, okay, before every holiday, we're just going to align on expectations. <laughs> I, was, I was chatting to Mark Manson a few, a few weeks ago at LA, and he was like, because he traveled around the world with his fiance, and he was like, oh, man, the main thing is just expectation alignment.
1: Bro, that's <laughs> was life. Like, Dude. That's what Mo Gaudat, the thing, that episode that I did, the first one with Mo Gaudat taught yeah. me so clearly and profoundly. He said, we're happy when our expectations of how our life is supposed to be going are met. Mm. And from that, you can deduce We're unhappy when our expectations of how our life is supposed to be going are unmet. So, met expectations equals the billionaire in Mayfair getting a medium-rare steak when that was what she or he ordered. Unmet expectations would be he ordered or she ordered medium-rare and it came, I don't know, bloody. Like, it doesn't matter the fact that you're in a, a super bougie Mayfair restaurant getting a, you know, Kobe beef A5 Wagyu steak. Unmet expectations... You get unhappiness and you go to Botswana where I was born hot bowl of rice expectations met for some of the people back in that in the village that I was was born in um the objective situation matters less than the subjective meeting of expectations mm-hmm. unmet expectations in work in your team members in your relationship in yourself will will result in unhappiness. And that's so important to understand because then you can influence it. You can work on, as it relates to yourself, this is why gratitude is so powerful. Gratitude is, for me, it's like an adjustment of one's expectations. Um, I I have this really fond memory of getting, I'm not sure if I've shared this on the podcast before or, or somewhere else, of this fond memory of, I didn't get on a plane and fly other than flying from Africa to the UK until I was like 21. So we didn't do holidays in our family, the, the money wasn't there. And I remember getting on that plane when I was 21 years old with my business partner at the time, flying to Thailand and economy, and just being captivated by this concept of being in this tin can, and we were going to attempt to fly to Thailand. And I'm looking at the like safety manual, and I'm like, "Oh, it's amazing! It's so such an incredible experience." I was so happy on that flight. Fast forward five, <coughs> fast forward five years, I'm flying 50 weeks a year in 2019, flying business in first class. And all I'm doing is rushing on the plane, throwing my bag up and pulling my laptop out as fast as I can before it takes off so I don't lose Wi-Fi. And then that day I, I encountered the lady next to me on the plane. who's probably on like a honeymoon or something. <gasps> she's like putting on the slippers and she's going, Dave, Dave, look at this catalog. And <gasps> they give you champagne and she's picking it up and she's sipping it. And she's old me. And she's experiencing the joy that I used to experience when my expectations were exceeded. And nothing has changed in my life other than my expectations have increased. Yeah. And with that, out the door has gone my joy. So what I can do now and what I do now is when I get on the plane, just before I step in, I touch the top of the plane and I take a moment before I step on and just remind myself of the absurdity mm. that I am I'm, I'm getting in this plane, we're going to fly it somewhere and I get to sit in this comfy chair that reclines. And when they bring over the sh- <gasps> oh that's so incredible you can influence your joy if you manage your expectations and you know as it relates to relationship the curse of the, the source of all unhappiness in relationship is unmet expectations mm. That's you can, the one. you could do that, something about that yeah we need to compare more notes on this relationship being There,
0: hey, I'll, I'll send you my uh, my, my review template yeah <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> um final thing is how so to what extent do you get criticism and how do you cope with it
1: all the time you're it's a occupation. very public figure
0: i think like with, especially with the dragon's den stuff you kind of became more mainstream than like a personal improvement business podcast yeah. would normally get you
1: it's an occupational hazard my friend yeah. said to me the bigger the podcast gets i look over at rogan and what he's been through yeah and i go wow uh it's, yeah, it's a lot. For, like r- what Rogan's been through, I just can not imagine what anyone going through, but it's an occupational hazard. And with the claps comes the booze and, and all that stuff. And I think the important thing is doing everything you can to stay true to yourself, because mm-hmm. then in the context of any feedback, whether it's positive or negative, you're anchored to something. That makes sense? You're anchored to your own, like, your own certainty in your intentions and your values and why you do what you do so even when we put out an episode with mo out on the podcast about artificial intelligence yeah. and i get i got like significant criticism for that because um it can be seen as scaremongering oh so nice. a lot of people yep. thought it was scaremongering right. or clickbait <laughs> or whatever else yeah um I believe in the message. I believe in what we said and what we did, and I know it's coming from a good place. So when we receive that that critical feedback, um, I can I can receive it um, knowing that we acted in line with um, our own personal integrity. If that makes sense. Mm. So that is the pursuit. Is like making sure why you're doing what you're doing is is true to yourself, because then it's easier to. Um, proceed forward regardless of feedback which is difficult
0: so what do you tell yourself like like if you see something on twitter or something like Mm. do you do you feel the sting initially and do you tell yourself a story or like how how does that go
1: it depends it depends it depends what the feedback is so when Dragon's Den airs, um, you'll get like a lot of people saying a lot of things, and I think at the start I would ch- I was more tuned into it, I was more tuned into like reading the tweets mm. as time has gone on I've realized that I need to put systems and processes in place that you as you'd call it to make sure that stuff doesn't infiltrate my piece, mm. which for me for me means don't read stuff, don't search stuff, friends don't send me stuff yep. haven't searched my name in any search engine or any way you can search yourself in about a year now. Mm. Um and trying to focus on the feedback that you know is whether it's critical or positive, the feedback you know is potentially valuable um as much as you can. Yeah. And I this practice is more increasingly important as like you reach more people. Yeah. Knowing where to look for feedback and knowing where not to look for feedback, I guess. Mm. So but does it sting? I mean, like, yeah. of course. Like, I, I could look, open up a comment section on like my own Instagram, and someone says something, um, and you, your, your initial instinct is to argue with the thing, to try and like argue with the thing, or to understand, or to maybe win them over. But as time has gone on, the distance between experiencing, seeing the thing, and it, my experience, my response and emotion to it, has reduced. Hmm. um which means that I can see something and go that's not true like I saw an article that said I was said um Steve is going to release a line of boxer shorts with his name on it and I remember, like, my, like someone had sent it to me. People don't send me stuff because they know just not to send me stuff. Like, we're just trying to keep focused here. And I remember thinking, I'm going to release a line of boxer shorts with my name on it. And they're like, yeah, you registered the trademark for the diary of a CEO. And one of the categories in which my team had registered it was like clothing. So the, like the newspaper ran with a story <laughs> that I was coming out with a, a, a underwear line, like a box, like a boxer short or underwear line with my name on it. And you read that and then you like, understand that that's gone out into the world and people believe that now that i'm coming out with boxer shorts with my name on them um and that it will influence people but you also reflect and go there's nothing i can do about that and that is okay it is it comes with the territory Mm. and the choice i have here is to completely remove myself from the universe and go to bali and like where i love love to go um or to carry on doing what i love to do and the choice i make is i want to carry on doing what i love to do
0: Brilliant. Stephen, I think that's a great place to end this. I just wanted to say, firstly, thank you for being gracious and being interviewed on the pod, sitting in that seat. I think also, like, you know, your work is just so inspirational to me, to my team, to basically everyone I know. We sort of share the, the podcast episodes around. When the vlog started, we were all sort of like watching that together because it's so inspiring seeing what you're building and the huge impact that you're able to have. But I think... On top of that, like there was, there was one comment when, you know, you and I were both speaking in Sharjah in the UAE a few months ago, a year ago, something like that. And you came and joined me and Gordon, my videographer for Mm. breakfast. And he was saying afterwards that, wow, what a class act Stephen is, because you were talking to him as much as you were talking to me. And normally with like celebrities and stuff, they, they, they'll ignore like the team members you know like gordon's been in, an, in, a, in a bunch in a bunch of situations where the videographer is kind of invisible mm. and just the fact that you're so gracious with everyone around you but i'm feeling emotional saying this is weird oh, it's, just, so it's just sweet, so impressive then. it's it's so admirable and yeah just wanted to say thank you
1: you're so sweet i i mean i don't know what to say um but but yeah i mean thank you so much for saying that i um yeah thank you for saying that I'm trying my best, you know. I'm trying my best to to be a good person. And I I'm not I'm not always great at that. Like I'm not I sometimes let myself down. I think about ways I reacted or days where I'm I'm tired and I and I, I didn't show up in the way I wanted, but I'm trying my best because it really matters to me. What you just said. I'm trying my best to leave more people with that feeling that you you, you know, your videographer was left with. So thank you for that because I do give myself a hard time about it sometimes, you know. Like where I am in my life now, it's like it's like, I realized that everyone I meet, I'm meeting everyone they know. Is Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm. So the girl that stopped me this morning as I was going into the office to tell me about quitting her job, like that, um, it really matters that I'm patient with her in that moment and that I listen to her and make her feel, you know, best as i possibly can and it and honestly it feels like it does feel like a responsibility and it's a responsibility i want to meet but i i know i'm like i'm human so i sometimes i'll fall short it's a new responsibility Mm. you know go back 10 years and and no one would have cared if i'd done that either way and they also would never have told anybody if i did that so it's a new responsibility it's one i want to meet and it's one that i know is important um And it's a fantastic, honestly, it's such a privilege that people care, like such a privilege that someone would care to stop you and say something nice or to, they would care that you join them or they'd want you to join their breakfast in the same way that we were saying like, it's a privilege that you asked me to be on, like to give you a quote for your book or whatever. I hope I never lose that. Hmm. Nice. Thank you. I appreciate you so much. What you do is incredible. And the way you conduct yourself is, a with the, the grace you conduct yourself is a bar that I would like to meet. So um thank you for having me on it's an honor that you'd have me on and yeah your team are a reflection of how wonderful you are so as is usually the case so thank you and thank you for reading the books because good books you know <laughs> yeah. no but thank you for that and you're one of those people that because i've not had much feedback on the book yet i'd love to know like that's why i asked you the question like what do you like about them and which one you prefer i'd love to know more of that off camera so mm.
0: i'll send you my annotations
1: send oh please know. yeah i'll just take got, this got, one off got on you yeah. <laughs> 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 all right
0: Thanks. good stuff thank you
1: so much thank you bro
0: Bye-bye.